Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. You can find out more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Kareem Harbit. He's the co-founder of the Agile Center, a consultancy that offers agile coaching and leadership coaching. Before starting the consultancy, he worked for years as a scrum master and an agile coach. I'm really interested to learn more about what agile means, what scrum means, and how public speaking has, has played into his work. Welcome to Teach the Geek interviews, Kareem. Thank you so much for having me on, Neil. It's good to be here. Excellent. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got your degree in math. So what was the motivation to get that degree? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, there were a couple of things at school that I didn't like doing. One was um, writing essays. Um, and I found the sciences didn't really make you have to do that, right? I did. I, I studied... Um, I, I nearly studied physics. I really wanted to study aeronautical engineering. In the end, I went with maths or math, as you folk would say, mathematics. And uh, um, I, I really just, I like getting my head down, learning stuff, um, working on my own, like not having to work in teams, do presentations, do essays. And you know, um, mathematics was a, a great way to do that. Plus, I really like the topic, right? I like the subject. I was good at it. So it just seemed like an obvious choice. You know, I, I'm with you on not liking essays. I remember when I was in high school, maybe my last year of high school in English class, I had to write this essay and I thought I did a really good job of this essay. And the teacher that I had, I still remember this, Mr. Shaw, all these years later, he was a substitute too. We had an original teacher and I think he had a he had some sort of mental problems. So he left and then we got this substitute for the rest of the year. And I remember submitting this essay. And I, again, I thought I did a great job, but apparently... One of the people that I wrote about in the essay was, a, I guess, a, a favorite of the of the substitute teacher. And I guess I portrayed him in a way that he didn't like. And so I got a I got a crappy grade on the essay. I just remember thinking this whole English thing now, nah, this ain't for me. I got to find something still, a little more. <laughs> more it still hurts now, I can tell. Right. It still hurts. <laughs> it, like... I, I, I like that. There's there's right and wrong in maths. Right. There's right, right. and wrong. Whereas other things, there's shades of gray. I prefer black and white, right and wrong. So that's why. Yeah, man. I, I so I when you when you mentioned essays, it just brought me back to that that last class in in in, in English in, in high school. I just remember, yeah, that was that was that was a bad time. So <laughs> so and I also saw that you got a, a master's as well. What was the motivation to get the master's? So I actually only just finished that in December of last year. Um, so I haven't even graduated yet. I just I finished everything, but I graduated in June. Um, the the motivation behind that uh, i don't know i just love learning and i figured i'd been consulting i'd been working with leaders on how do we create the environment for innovation i love innovation i love entrepreneurship i am an entrepreneur so the masters i did um was innovation and entrepreneurship from um, hec paris a business school house in france and um it, it was just fascinating it's like an mba but for startups uh, for people who don't want to do the traditional big companies, you want to sort of you know, learn how to build and, and uh, scale up new organizations and create new products, which is what I love doing. So 
I decided not to do an MBA, but to do that instead. And I learned a ton about how businesses work, about how they scale, about design thinking, about business strategy, even had some finance stuff in there. And I just, I it was a rush of blood to the head. I just finished writing my book. I felt like I had some time. So I signed up for a 18 months master's degree and uh, it was a lot of work, but it was fun and I learned so much. So uh, for me, it's just about learning and growth. Hopefully there weren't any, were, there weren't any essays involved. <laughs> there weren't essays. No, the, uh, the kind of the dissertation was more of a team project. So we took an idea and we created over 12 months, we created a whole business plan and the very final assessment was pitching to venture capitalists. So it was much more hands-on. It was actually super cool. I really enjoyed it. Okay, yeah, that actually kind of sounds like fun, as opposed to writing some essay that some some substitute teacher then says that they don't like yes. it when you get a crappy grade on it. Yes, Mr. Shaw. Mr. Shaw, yeah, to hell with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, you 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 said something that kind of uh, that that sparked something in me. I really liked working at at startups as well. There seems to be less red tape when it comes to people that are trying to get something going as opposed to a, a bigger company. I remember when I was working at a bigger company and we used to have to write these protocols and reports. And whenever there was a, a change in the, I guess, the revision of a, of a document, we get an email about it. And these are emails I often would ignore because we got them so often. Yeah. But I remember filling out one of these protocols, doing, doing a protocol, but apparently I used the wrong revision. Uh, the revision had changed. And I remember taking it to document control and they didn't accept it because I used the wrong revision. I just remember being so damn mad. <laughs> it's like, this is really bad or in the grand scheme of things. And you look at the revisions and you look at the differences. It's like minute. It's just like, come on, man. But, yeah. but those are the kind of things you deal with when you work at these bigger companies. It's really a lot of, of, of rules that you have to follow as opposed yeah. to maybe at a startup where it's more, I don't want to say free, free, free flowing, but I will say free, more free flowing. It's not as, as rigid. It's more dynamic. It's more dynamic, flexible. You have more autonomy. So I, so I, I, I have a company that I run, but also my, my consulting practice is helping those big organizations, the bureaucratic, slow-moving organizations, to be a little bit more nimble, a little bit more like startups. Because if you think about it, how many big organizations truly innovate, right? I know you can probably say Apple and Amazon and some of them, right? Some of these but if you think of most of the of the big the big banks, the big telcos, the big um, retailers, Walmart, all of these folks, are any of them truly innovative in the way that Apple and Netflix and Amazon and Facebook and Spotify truly innovative, right? And Uber, right? These are all companies that came from nowhere to, to dominate. And it, what is it about what they have that big organizations struggle with? That's what I like doing, and, and I like helping those big organizations be a little bit more like those startups but 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 effective startups so it's a really interesting topic yeah i mean i think a lot of times with these bigger companies when they when they think about innovation they think of acquiring those innovative companies and then when yeah. they acquire those innovative companies then those innovative companies become less innovative because now they're part of this big conglomerate <laughs> it's like what's the exactly. whole thing? <laughs> exactly right they, they, they become the bureaucracy and then they slow down and then someone else takes over so uh, there's a space to help them there so that's what i like doing Wonderful. So I mentioned in the intro that you're into Agile and Scrum. So I've heard these terms before, but I always kind of mix them up. So what's the difference between Agile and Scrum? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Agile is the broader movement, right? It, it came out of the software development world, which was my, my first job, my, uh, my first love. Uh, if you like, I was a software engineer. Um, and, you know, in that world, you have the bureaucracy too, right? You have 
these big project documents, you have the scope, you do the analysis, and then you've got to do some coding, and then you've got to do some testing, and this all takes 18 months. And by the end, you realize you've built the wrong thing, right? <laughs> or, or it's it's slipped and it's taken too late, too long, or you're cut, everything's changed since you, it's just too slow, too long, too rigid. And so the agile movement was about, hey, why don't we just spend a couple of weeks building something, putting it in front of our customers, seeing what they think. Uh, and then they'll give us some feedback and then maybe we'll change and we'll do something else. And then we, we just build it bit by bit and get feedback along the way. And if we realize we're going in the wrong direction, we'll slightly adjust so that we don't end up in the wrong place. That's all it is really, right? And, and Scrum is one approach for doing that. There are plenty of others, but Scrum is the most popular. So Scrum is an agile approach to product development, um, but uh, there are other agile approaches. Agile is the, the big tent really. But uh, actually what I do now is, is gone way beyond software. It's more about innovation is all about scaling up whole whole new business lines product services business models within big orgs so we've just scaled it from software up to the whole organization so being agile is about being nimble fast responsive to a changing world are there any instances in which using an agile approach wouldn't be appropriate yeah so here's here's the dichotomy right you've, you've when you're more agile it means you're more responsive but it means you're less efficient and when you're more efficient, it means that you're less agile. So for a thing, if you think of a, a big container ship, right, going from A to B, that's very efficient, right? That's the cheapest way to get your stuff from uh, China to New York or whatever, right? Um, but if you don't necessarily know where you're going and you need to be able to weave in and out and maybe go this way or that way and, and learn as you go, you don't want to be on that big ship that's really hard to, to move, right? You want something a bit nimbler to make sure you end up in the right place. But it's going to be more. It's going to be less efficient, right? In a speedboat, you'll spend more money to to get there. However, you'll get to the right place. So when you have high uncertainty and high volatility, and you don't necessarily know your solution, you want agility. When you've got low uncertainty and low volatility, you want efficiency, like in manufacturing or or more construction type projects. Maybe you wouldn't use it there. So this is about recognizing that we don't always know what the customer wants. Therefore, we're going to need to check frequently, get their feedback and course correct because of it. So it all depends on the uncertainty, the complexity and the volatility of the context you're in. Gotcha. So what was it about Agile that made you want to get into it? Um, I, after being a software developer, I became a project manager, right? So I initially did that, but in that traditional sense of planning 18 month projects with a big business case, getting sign off, getting the scope set and delivering it. And it just didn't work very well. Right. It just because you realize what you thought was important wasn't actually important when you finally built the thing. Customers might think they want it, but when you put it in front of them, they actually they that's what they said, but they don't. That's not what they wanted. And I think Henry Ford may have once said, if I had asked customers what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses. Right. Um, but actually, if you show them something else, then they might want that. So um, I really struggled with that. And it was by accident, really. I was asked to go and um, work on this Agile project, this Scrum project. And I thought, I don't know what this is, but sure, why not? I was young, I'll learn it. Um, and then when I did that, and instead of having working software in 18 months, we had working software in two weeks. It wasn't much, but it was some features that worked, right? And we could show it to people. Um, and then we did another two weeks and I was like, this is what I want to do. Right. Um, and then I was helping the team work together and then helping. Like, it's just it's just much more engaging and interesting to work in that way. And uh, I never really looked back from that point in 2008, 9. I've been doing it ever since at various levels. Yeah, I've heard that Henry Ford quote, too. 
but how exactly are you supposed to make horses faster anyway? I mean, they're, they're animals. <laughs> they're, what the hell am I supposed to do? Give them more food? Like they're going to run as fast <laughs> as they're going to run. With the mother. This is, but the point, the point is, right, that the customers know their problems. Yeah. They know their problems, but they don't necessarily know the solution, right? Now, um, if you had asked the customers about their phones, would they have come up with that, right? It takes, it takes great design, great product knowledge, great empathy of your customer to come up with the solution to a problem, right? And, and the problem was, I want my phone to be more than just a phone. I want it to be an iPod. I want it to be seamlessly integrated with the internet. I want it to... But if you had asked your customers, what do you want in a phone? They would not have said that. And this is, this is the, the, the joy of innovation, right? The customers know their problems. We're trained to understand solutions. We need to bring those things together. That's where the magic happens. That's interesting. Because oftentimes when I hear about products and, and product development, the, the first thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to do some market research. But if you ask the, the people about their problems and, and they tell you the problems and you you have to present something in front of them and in front of them at, at some point. But just as you said, if you ask them about the phone, what, what do you want in the phone? They wouldn't have said, I want to be able to listen to my music on a phone. It, it wouldn't even have occurred to get occurred to them, I'm sure, to even think something like that. So I, I guess it, it begs the question, what's the point of even asking them? But I guess it, the, the, you, you still want to find out what the problems are and then anything else. And then yeah. using the agile approach, put on these features and say, is this something you uh, that you'd like? Oh, I put, you have music on the phone? Yeah, that's great. Okay, yeah. cool. Okay. Observation. Yeah. Observation helps, right? People had phones. People had MP3 players at the time, maybe an iPod. It's like, well, I want to listen to my music and I want to make a call. Well, why don't we just make that one device, right? But but that leap sounds really easy now, right? But that's the leap of great innovators. But, but actually understanding what customers want to do is incredibly important to before you can make that leap, understanding what their pain points are, all of these things, right? This is where design thinking comes in, lean startup comes in, um, a load of good stuff. Yeah. So I, I also I mentioned in the intro that you co-founded the Agile Center. Where did the idea for, for building that come from? It came from my, uh, me and a friend, actually two friends. Uh, there were, one has moved on since. And, uh, and we... We thought we were working at, uh, you know, we were working at McKinsey at the time, big consulting firm. And we were thinking, I know these guys are really great at consulting, right? at strategy consulting, and they are. Um, but we're really great at agile coaching. We're really great at this stuff. Um, wouldn't it be great if we just worked directly with customers? And so in the end, we kind of, um, we, we grouped together and we created this place where you could provide, get training and coaching from real industry experts you know i've been doing it i've been doing software development product development agile stuff for, for nearly 20 years um been really really deep into this um and so the idea was you know come, come to people who are experts rather than consultants who've maybe got a year's experience um we don't do too much consulting these days we do a bit but we're really doubling down on training um providing high quality world-class training um in person uh, live like this or or, or pre-recorded on demand um and we just felt like there, there needed to be something, an alternative to the big consultancies who, who don't necessarily have the depth of, and breadth of knowledge that, that we had. When it comes to the work that you do just in terms of Agile and, and, and Scrum, is it something that is difficult to convince their clients to adopt? And if so, how, what do you do to make them see the light? So I've long since stopped trying to convince anybody of anything, right? Because... Normally, when people come to me, they want to be better. They want to improve. They recognize the challenges. Now, 
The question then becomes, right, given that you want to be better at this, do you realize you need to change the way your management style works? Do you realize you need to change the culture of the organization? You probably need to change your structures and how your teams come together. You almost certainly need to change your HR policies to be more engaging places to work rather than all the rules you talked about. And you probably need to change how you invest money and you govern that money because these fixed scope projects where we think we know everything up front, they're not going to fly now. You need to give us a bit more freedom as we go. Right. So, yes, people know they need more agility. They know this is how to do it. But... When I say, hey, you probably need to change these things, that's where the resistance comes in. Like, but, but we've always done it like this. We've existed in this organizational structure since the production line and the Model T was being made back in uh, 1913, right? It's over 100 years. Why should we change now? And my answer is because the world has changed now, right? Um, uh, and Henry Ford wasn't trying to innovate on that production line. He was trying to make as many Model Ts as he could for as little money as he could, right? Um, and so maybe we could think about some different ways of doing things. So um, for me, I tend not to try to convince organizations they need agility. They already know that. For me, it's trying to help them uh, understand just the sheer amount of change that needs to happen to be as nimble as an Amazon or a Netflix or a Facebook, right? Um, while still keeping the lights on on what you do. Um, and that's a challenge. Um, but hey, they either want to do it or they don't, right? And I'm here to help if they do. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, I, I, could, I could totally see going into an organization and at least initially they, they're they on board, but then you tell them all these, all these changes that they need to make, like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know you, you mean do all that. I mean, <laughs> is there a way that we can change without changing? Yeah, and you know what? <laughs> There are plenty of people who are giving you that option. I call it like the diet pill, right? I don't want to change my diet. I still want to eat McDonald's. I still want to drink that pints of beer every night. And I don't want to do any training down in the gym, but I want to look like Brad Pitt in Fight Club, right? Um, well, sorry to break it to you, but you probably won't unless you do these things. Um, but there are other people who say, hey, you don't need to change all this stuff. You know, just do this stuff. And, and they're incredibly popular, these approaches but um, they don't tend to work very well. So the question is, do you want to do it properly or do you do want to take the easy option? Um, and many, many want to take the easy option and that's okay. It's just not what I want to help them with. Gotcha. So yeah, I, I get you, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and you know, quite validly, it's risky for them. It's okay if you say no, right? I get that. Yeah, no question. So then, when it comes to speaking in front of people, I'm guessing even just to get business for, for, for the Agile Center, for, for the, the companies that you work with, you have to yeah. talk to them at first. So is that something, just speaking in front of people in general, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what'd you do to get better at it? Oh, Neil, let me tell you, this was something I avoided like the plague, right? I remember when I was, I was doing my, I don't know, probably like 13, right? I remember I had to give a two minute talk in front of my class. And I had my notes, but my hand was shaking so much. I didn't want anyone to know I was nervous. So I had to put my notes down because otherwise I'd see the paper moving. You could hear it. I like, put that down. And I tried to speak and my voice was breaking and my heart I thought was going to explode out of my chest. And in short, I was terrified of public speaking for decades, right? Ever since I can remember. And so I avoided any subject where I'd have to do that. I avoided any job where I'd have to do that, you know, software engineer, head down, headphones on, write some code. And on the, at the same time, I was fascinated by great oratory and great rhetoric and great public speaking. I, I, I was inspired by it, right? I loved it. I wished I could do it. And, um, and so there came a point in my career where I realized 
I wasn't going to go anywhere unless I learned how to do this. Even, even in, my, in my team meetings, we'd go around the table, there'd be like seven people in the room. When it came to my turn to give my update, I'd start panicking, right? And I didn't want that to be me. So, I mean, from about the age of 25 to where I am now, I'm 41, um, I, I made a commitment to myself. I was going to speak at every single possible opportunity. So I started giving talks to my team. I ended up giving talks to uh, bigger meetings. I started speaking at conferences, just, you know, 10, 15 people uh, and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I just did it and I did it and I did it. And the last conference talk had 200 people in it. Right? And I felt fine. Um, obviously, I started training. So every day I'm speaking in front of um, 20 to 30 people in the room or, or used to be in the room until two years ago. <laughs> now it's on Zoom. Right. Um, and at the same time as trying to get more relaxed about it, I tried to get better at it. So I studied public uh, speakers who, who I admire. I looked at how they did it. And, uh, and I'm on my journey. Right. I, I'm not I'm not Barack Obama right now, um, but I'm better than I was. And hopefully in a few years time, I'll be better than I am now because I'm always working at it. But what I can tell you is I don't panic anymore. I don't shake anymore. I get a little bit of a butterfly, uh, but heart pumps a bit, but then after two minutes, I'm fine. So um, I'm now pretty relaxed doing it, um, but now I want to get really good at doing it. So no, I haven't always enjoyed doing it at all. Yeah, I hear you on that, Kareem. I remember the first presentation I had to give in front of senior management. So I was a product development engineer at a medical device company. And a few months into the job, they told me I was going to be a project lead. And what, so what the hell is a project lead? Apparently the, the company was too cheap to hire project managers. So people <laughs> like yourself, so they, they, they gave that responsibility to the product development engineers. And one of the responsibilities yeah. was giving presentations in front of management on project progress every month. Yeah. And, and those first few presentations were absolutely, or at least for me, were absolutely horrendous. I, I did not know it was that possible. I didn't know it was possible to sweat that profusely for one's body, Kareem. I mean, it, it was coming from, I, luckily I didn't have any notes, so they couldn't see the shaking, but I'm almost sure they could, they could see the sweat because it was, it was coming from everywhere. And I just, I realized that this is something I got to get better at. I do this every yeah. month. And so this is, this is definitely something I need to improve on. I don't want to be a sweaty mess in front of the CEO every damn month. So I, I definitely saw the utility and, and obviously you saw it too. So well, kudos for you for, for getting, for getting better at it. And well, another thing you mentioned, you. well, another thing you mentioned was, was Barack Obama. So yeah, a lot of people see him as a great, as a great orator, but do you know that he uses a lot of filler words? He uses, he says, um, a lot. And to many people, that's the, that's the mark of a poor orator. So it all just goes to opinion and perspective. So it's yeah. really interesting when it comes to that kind of thing as, as to what's good and what's not. You know, everyone has their, their tics, right? Some people say you should do this. Some people say you should smile. Some people say you should not smile. But I think the most important thing is to find your style, what's, what's authentic to you and what works. I mean, there are some things that you really you shouldn't do, right? Like don't look down and mumble. But, but also, like you, you've still got to be yourself. And, um, you know, his, his uh, I think it's 2004, right? It was his uh, um, Democratic National Convention conference speech. Still today, I go back and watch that, right? That's when he was just a senator, I think, right? And I go back and watch that. And still, I think, I'm not, I'm not sure it gets any better than that, right? That was a masterpiece. And, and now I tried to learn from that. I tried to learn from, you know, people from Churchill, from all of these great speakers over the years. And you, you take little bits and you make it yours. But um, kudos to you as well. I mean, there are, I think there are two types of people, right? People who, who are scared of it and they avoid it and people who are scared of it and they lean into it and they try to get good. Um, uh, and I think hopefully I'll try to be the, the second of those two. 
Well, I very well could have been that first one, Kareem, but I said I had to give these presentations every month. <laughs> it was something I could avoid. So I was like, well, if I got to get up in front of these people, I might as well try to get good at it. <laughs> yeah, you may as well. Yeah, it's no a great question. it's a great skill to have in so many walks of life. Yeah, no question. Do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Um. Yeah, I I do. I mean, I, I obviously I, I start with a with an overall topic that I think is interesting, um, and then I decide right what are three key messages I want to give in this topic. Right, and, and the biggest learning for me, one of the biggest learnings is stop trying to put so much content in your talk. Right, whether you've got an hour or forty five minutes or half an hour or twenty minute TED talk style, if you think you can fit this much in, you can fit this much in. Right. Um, because they won't remember this much anyway. And if you put this much in, you can then fill out out with examples and stories. Right? So one of the things for me, three key messages in a topic. Um, how do you start in a powerful way? Um, either a story, an emotional story, or a really interesting fact, somewhere that, that engages. And so many people start and they're just like, Hi, I'm Kareem. I'm, I live in North London and I've been working in software development. Right. That no one cares. Right. So you have to engage people in the first minute. Otherwise, they, they don't care. Right. And, and so that was a big learning for me. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, then I had three key topics. I try and weave as many stories in. Um, I try and make it as emotional as I can. I try and put as much as myself in there. If I can, I try to put some uh, some rather some funny moments in there. You know, I'm not a comedian, but, you know, you can uh, you can get the odd chuckle from people if you try. And um, I just try to make it not all about here's some information. But here, like, I'm making you feel a certain way. Uh, and, and so that's what I do. You know, I kind of uh, I lead in with a story or something. And then um, I go through those three things. And then I try and wrap it back up to that story at the start. And then I leave them with a quick summary. So we've covered this, this, and this. And then if you can leave it with a memorable ending, do that. And then thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Um, and that's really it. And then inside there, you, you drop in whatever you want to drop in. Um, that's really the framework I use. That's a great framework. And I think the use of stories is smart on your part. It was something that I didn't realize was as effective as it, as it was when I first started giving presentations, so especially more technical presentations. Because I figure people are here for the data. They're not here to hear yeah. stories. But especially if you're talking to a, a group that's outside of your, your realm of expertise, stories are a great way to get them to, to engage and listen to what you have to say. So Kudos to you. Yeah. And you know what's really funny? What, what actually is really funny is when you try to be funny and it, it, it doesn't work or when you actually say something and you're not trying to be funny and they laugh. <laughs> yeah. I know. I like uh, I like the kind of the small off the cuff remarks, right? I mean, I don't set up a big joke like a like a comedian would do, but I mean, you can you can say things that are a bit more informal or a bit more fun, right? And and I think yeah, people people don't remember facts; they remember stories, right? Our brains are designed to remember stories and and how they feel. So you you want to make them feel a certain way. You want to tell them a story. Um, you can drop a few facts in, but they won't remember those things. Like if you ask them in two weeks' time, they'll remember the stories you told. And you watch any TED talk, it's just it's eighty percent stories, right? Eighty percent metaphors and stories and emotion. Twenty percent facts. So it's it's really hard to do, but it's it's much more effective. I remember I was doing one of these interviews and the guest said that a, a quote that she likes is people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And I remember yeah. listening to that quote and thinking, I hate that quote with a passion. I spent all this time <laughs> putting this presentation together and all you remember is how you feel. 
<laughs> I know. It's not fair, is it? It's not fair. Yeah, no question. You know what? This has been really great talking to you, Kareem. Thank you for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter very easily, Kareem Harbert. Um, you can find me in kareemharbert.com. Um, and my, my contact details are there. So K-A-R-I-M-H-A-R-B-O-T-T. Um, I, as far as I know, I'm the only person on this planet with that name. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. And um, yeah, um, follow me, um, ping me a message and uh, uh, we'll, we'll chat if, if any of that was interesting to you. But uh, I, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. This is a topic that's close to my heart. So uh, it was really great speaking with you. If, you know what? It's really great that you're the only Kareem Harbit on the planet and you can claim that. Unfortunately, I cannot do the same with my name. There's quite, there's quite a number of Neil Thompson's. I'm not sure how many yeah. black ones there are, but there, there's quite a number of Neil Thompson. So thank you again for being a guest, Kareem. Well, everyone, that marks the end of, a ne- of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. Um, my name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek. It's a, it's a platform for science and engineering professionals. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Kareem. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms. We're on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.